0: Welcome to Behind the Paranormal, with Paul and Ben
1: Eno. What crashed in the desert near Roswell, New Mexico in the summer of 1947? Was it really from another planet? And if it's all true, where are
2: the artifacts today? Hey there, and welcome to the 559th edition of Behind the Paranormal with... Paul and Ben Eno, I am Ben, and those hot and sandy questions came from my co-host and partner in the paranormal, my dad. In this evening, uh, we are pleased to welcome back, although he's not here yet, we're hoping to get him um, back on, uh, we're hoping to get him on in the first place, uh, we're having a little bit of trouble trying to reach him, uh, one of the greatest names in uh, UFO studies for a look at his own role in uh, one of the greatest investigations of all time that I would say led to probably this huge blossoming interest of uh, UFOs in the first place. And we welcome your phone calls this evening. Numbers to call, that's 401-766-1240, that's locally, or from anywhere in the U.S. or Canada, 800-449-1240. Now we can't
1: believe it's been over a year since he was last on the show, but we're pleased to welcome back, I hope, a nuclear physicist Stanton Friedman, probably the best-known figure in UFO research today. Stanton is a graduate and undergraduate degrees in physics from the University of Chicago in 1955 and 1956, respectively. That's not bad, uh, one year. Uh, for 14 years, he worked as a nuclear physicist for such companies as General Electric, General Motors, Westinghouse, TRW Systems, Aerojet Gen- General Nucleonics, and McDonnell Douglas Corporation, working in such highly advanced, classified, and ev- eventually canceled programs as nuclear aircraft, fission and fusion rockets, and various compact nuclear power plants for space and terrestrial applications. He became interested in UFOs in 1958, and since 1967 has given hundreds of lectures throughout the U.S. and Canada and in 18 other countries. He has published more than 90 UFO papers and has appeared on hundreds of radio and TV programs, including Larry King Live in 2007 and twice in 2008, and many documentaries. I randomly uh, turned down the Science Channel yesterday, and there he was. Author of the, uh, I should say he is the author of or co-author of at least 10 books that I know of, Also, he has kindly agreed to write the preface for our next book, Cosmic Journey, which will be out next year, I hope. Stan was the original civilian investigator of the 1947 Roswell incident, which is the primary subject of our conversation this evening. Again, I hope so. His website, stantonfriedman.com, stanton, F-R-I-E-D-M-A-N.com. Well, we have attempted to... uh, Get hold of him at his usual number, we never usually have any problem with that, and uh, hopefully we will connect uh, as we go indeed. in the meantime, we can talk a little bit about the roswell case it 's very well known, although a lot of people still have not not heard of it and it 's as problematic as many other UFO cases have been, for example uh, we 're talking you never can quite get exactly. The the information that would help you put your finger on a, on a lot of things. Supposedly, what happened was during the summer of 1947, and as you know, this was right after the World War II, the end of World War II in 1945, and the nuclear tests that were going on in the Southwest. Uh, the town of Roswell, New Mexico, which is the county seat of Chavez County in in uh, that state, was uh, <clears throat> the area in which uh, something crashed. There's some debate whether it was uh, early July or late June and it is generally believed today to be to have been some sort of ufo although the official story is that it was a secret balloon project uh, but that the balloon crashed uh, apparently after hitting something but what it hit is is part of the problem so no nobody really knows exactly what the story is uh... i think it's probably generally agreed that there was a crash but what it was is another issue uh... In, uh The last interview he ever did, I believe it was the last interview he ever did, on this show, uh, that was the last interview before he died, I I had dinner with Stan Friedman twice, uh, two weeks ago, at a UFO conference where we were both speaking. And uh, I said to Stan, you know, I think you, you've kind of beaten the odds. You've been on the show four or five times, and you're still around, fortunately. <clears throat> but uh, there have been a number of people who have been on this show. Who's, uh, this was their last interview. So they died within a day or two. So I don't know if that's, that's a warning to any potential guests. Uh, certainly not to callers. Callers are perfectly healthy as far as we know. Anyway, so the Roswell case has uh, evoked a lot of uh, questions. Uh, as far as what it was and this sort of thing. The story was that is generally accepted and that sort of was uh, dormant for like 30 years before several authors uh, went back to it in the 1970s was that this crash occurred. A farmer, rancher, uh, went into the town of Roswell to the police station with a number of very strange fragments and artifacts from this crash Uh, And they called the um, intelligence office at the uh, Roswell Army Airfield. Uh, And it's interesting that this was the uh, 509th Heavy Bombardment Group headquartered there. Seems to be the middle of nowhere. But they were the only group at the time that was uh, storing nuclear weapons. So one wonders about the nuclear connections with any sort of... uh, uh, situation that, that had to do with, with uh, UFOs and uh, if these are aliens from other planets, and 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 there you go. So, uh, so in any case, th- this this was the story. Now, now, there's more to it than that. Uh, supposedly, military uh, people went out to this uh, this site, where which was about 60 miles from the town of Roswell, and all sorts of um, uh, artifacts were there, uh, like the. The stuff that the farmer had brought, in, the rancher had brought into the police station. Uh, these things would do things like it, it was like tinfoil, but you would you would fold it and it would unfold itself. You could scratch it with a knife and it would heal itself. And uh, one of the investigators uh, supposedly commented that it was more like skin than any sort of metal. And so everyone was kind of boggled from the start. They tried to drill through some of it and the drill broke, you know, with industrial strength drills. Now in addition to this there were uh supposedly bodies found. Uh there were two is that him? No, okay. There were two sites, one with all the debris that we just mentioned and another that supposedly had alien bodies or at least non-human bodies around a uh a sort of an egg-shaped craft. Uh what really boggled the the investigators was that uh they never found, as far as we know, any any engine, any moving parts. There was a serious question about how this thing flew. Uh the um the theory that it collided with one of the secret balloons uh from the um what was the name of that project? I can't remember I wasn't prepared to talk uh, about and, uh, uh,
2: the, 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 the uh, balloon project. Project
1: uh, uh project. Mogul. Project oh, Mogul. Right, right, yes. right. right. And uh, that this craft probably uh, might have uh, collided with that and created all this debris. That, that that's, no one knows that for sure. Now this uh, supposedly uh, occurred in the midst of uh, the uh, you know in the community, which occurred, people hear things, and supposedly people in the community were told. Uh, then th- there is some some evidence that there was a. A uh, civilian group that came out and just happened to be hiking or camping in the area and saw the crash and saw the bodies before the military got there. There were a number of people who were uh, threatened uh, as I understand them, and I wanted to have him tell the story tonight but Stan Friedman was the first civilian investigator of this, and uh, people uh, t- uh, i 'm sure told him about this that they were threatened by the the authorities uh, that they had to keep quiet about whatever they knew. Uh, because in a community like this, word spreads rapidly. Uh, the local funeral director went out to the base uh, because they, he'd received questions about whether how, how do, certain bodies could be preserved, and they were told they were the bodies of children uh, because the, these supposed aliens were very small and uh, were somewhat different from us. Although the basic, you know, head and two arms and two legs kind of thing were there. His girlfriend, the the uh, funeral director's girlfriend was a nurse out at the base and he supposedly saw her running from an examination room. First the base, the base was, there were people flying in from Washington, the base was crawling with with strange people and uh, she supposedly came running out of an operating room with, with uh, t- something over her face because uh, of the smell and uh, they were they were high-ranking military officers and all this sort of thing so as far as what actually occurred, uh, that that is the basic the basic story. Uh, now this uh, Was kind of hushed up, and now the the thing that really kind of let the cat out of the bag. Nobody might have known about this at all, but the Roswell paper received a uh, uh, press release from the public affairs office at the Roswell Army Airfield that said that a, a flying saucer or flying disc had been recovered by the U.S. Army. And now whether that was deliberate or, or an unbelievable mistake by the base commander, we don't really know. But that did appear in the paper. And we have a picture of Stan. Oh, is that him there? Yes. Oh, great. We finally have Stan with us, and we'll let him take up take up the story. Uh, Stan, you're with us.
0: I'm with you. I'm sorry. <laughs> oh, no, not at
1: all. Life in the 21st century, as long as you're okay.
0: I'm fine. Okay.
1: Yeah. Well, I've attempted in my humble way to tell the story of the Roswell crash, uh, or at least what we know or think we know. And uh, we've introduced you and mentioned that you were the first civilian investigator of this. So why did you take up the story? How did you find out about the case, and how did you get involved with investigating it?
0: Well, it was purely by accident. I was in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, about to speak uh, that evening at Louisiana State University. I'd done over 700 college lectures, you know, so I get around. And I was supposed to do three interviews with different interviewers uh, at a television station in Baton Rouge. So I did the first two, and the third interviewer, the woman, wasn't there. This is in 1978. Nowhere to be found. Didn't have cell phones back then. So the station manager's uh, giving me coffee. He's trying to convince me to stick around for a while. And out of the blue, he says, uh, you know, the guy you ought to talk to is Jesse Marcel and brilliant investigator that I am, I said, who's he? (laughs) (laughs) And his next sentence changed my life. Uh, He said, uh, he handled wreckage of one of those saucers you're interested in when he was in the military. What? (laughs) Where'd that come from, you know? Uh, What do you know about him? Oh, he's a great guy. He lives in Homa. I didn't know where Homa, Louisiana was. (laughs) I've been there since, but to see Jesse. But, uh, you know... Tell me more. Well, we're old ham radio buddies. Hmm. And the reason I found out later that uh, he knew Bill Allen was his name, the station manager, uh, Jesse's story is because he'd seen it in the New Orleans paper, one of many papers that carried the story on July 8, 1947, uh, which didn't say a lot. And when I asked him, uh, again, much later, uh, what did Jesse tell you? He didn't tell me anything. He said, I can't talk about that. Uh, and so, uh, I was busy the rest of the day. The reporter showed up. I, I was busy the rest of the day. The next day, I'm at the airport early. I thought, well, let's see if we can, if things went so well yesterday. Let's see how they go with this Jesse Marcel. I called information, got a number, called him, told him I'd been talking to Bill Allen, that I'd had a clearance for 14 years, and was very interested in UFOs and so forth. And he told me his story. And people say, why did he talk to you? Well, as I found out later, he was one of the few people who couldn't deny his involvement. His name was in newspapers all over the place. Uh, He was the intelligence officer for the most elite military group in the world, the 509th, which was based in Roswell. And I don't say that lightly. They dropped the atomic bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. They dropped two more on Operation Crossroads uh, the next year in the Pacific. So, hand-picked officers, hand-picked men. Remember, the war ended in forty-five, so a lot of people got out, but they had the good guys still there. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was very impressed with Jesse. I shared the information with Bill Moore, uh, an old colleague from Pittsburgh who was then living in Minnesota. Uh, Bill had another story about an English actor, Huey Green was his name, who, driving across the country... The story was in the Flying Saucer Review, uh, English Journal. Uh, driving across the country, he heard on the radio about a crash saucer in New Mexico. Uh, Bill was able to find his son in Canada, who talked to his father. It turns out he could pin down the date. Jesse didn't have an exact date. And this guy says, uh, told Bill eventually, that it happened the first week of July. 1947, obviously a trip from Los Angeles, where he had been to Philadelphia, it was not something you did every day back then. You know, the roads were
1: not so great in 1947. Not so great now. <laughs>
0: well, okay. But, uh, and so, um, we, he pinned down the date. Bill went to the University of Minnesota Library in St. Paul, looked at the periodicals department. There was a story many different versions. They spelt Walter Haupt's name four different ways. He was the public relations officer who put out the story at the direction of Colonel Blanchard, who was the base commander, which I found out later. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we uh, pursued this. We had a date now. We turned up a lot of newspaper articles, and... Uh, I had already heard a little bit about Roswell, a woman named Lydia Sluppi, Her son had had a good sighting in California, a far stranger. He said, you really ought to talk to my mother. And I did. She lived in Albuquerque, and she had a very good sighting. But she also told about the strange experience of working at a radio station in Albuquerque and hearing from their Roswell affiliate about a crashed saucer. And the wreckage was being sent to Wright-Patterson Air Force Base. And she was uh, in accounting, but she was a very good typist. And the guy was dictating over the phone so she could put it on the newswire, because Roswell wasn't connected to the newswire back then, (laughs) but the Albuquerque station was. And while she was transmitting or typing in, uh, a bell rang on the system, and the message said, discontinue this transmission, FBI. Uh, and she asked the guy on the other end in Roswell, what should I do? Discontinue it. <laughs> uh, and people might wonder, but remember, n- New Mexico had was the place where the first atom bomb was tested, Trinity Site. It's where uh, two of the three nuclear weapons labs were in the country, uh, Los Alamos and Sandia. Uh, White Sands Missile Range was there. Or, that's where we were firing the captured German V-2s. What I'm saying is Security was a major concern in New Mexico, so it wouldn't be surprising if the FBI was paying attention to what was going on on the news wires. Anyway, uh, Bill and I started to work, and in a year and a half, we located 62 people. This is the old-fashioned way: uh, people who've been at the base. Uh, I say calling information, finding, uh, asking somebody who we remembers from there and from his Christmas list where was that person, and so forth uh you know i I realize people don't do that anymore. Uh, they go to the internet, but there was no internet mm-hmm. <laughs> didn't have a choice. So the first book came out uh by Charles Berlitz and Bill Moore, the Roswell incident. I got a percentage of bill's uh royalties. We had talked to sixty two people by nineteen eighty when that book came out by nineteen eighty six it was up to ninety two people. And, you know, sometimes you get lucky. I I shouldn't say that, but you do. <laughs> uh, luck is what happens when you're ready for it, I guess. For example, I called, checked editor and publisher. Oh, there's a newspaper in Roswell. What did I know? Mm-hmm. <laughs> the Roswell Daily Record. I called, asked for the, uh, this is in 1978, I asked for the editor from 1947. Oh, long gone. What do you need? Well, i got the story here. It says the base public information officer, a guy named, Walter Hout or Haught, his name is spelled four different ways in the newspaper articles. And before I could finish this sentence, she says, Oh, his wife works here.
3: What? You
0: know, totally surprised. He was from Chicago, Uh, not surprised that he was based at Roswell. He was an outstanding bombardier, incidentally, not just a PR guy. He was chosen to drop the instrument package in one of those two uh, atom bomb tests in 1946. So he and he flew 20 uh, missions over Japan
3: during Thank the war. Lord. Wow. Wow.
0: So I I, I mentioned this because some of the uh debunkers uh tell a story an unnamed PR guy put out uh an unauthorized story which is total baloney. Uh you know, he was authorized by uh, Colonel Blanchard and incidentally people say, oh Colonel Blanchard, he he was just a loose cannon. Yeah, he went on to be a four star general and was Vice Chief of
3: Staff <laughs> of the United <laughs>
0: States Air Force when he died of a massive heart attack at the Pentagon. So I he was head of operations, had thousands of nuclear weapons under his control for Strategic Air Command, he was for, before he became Vice Chief of Staff of the Air Force. So, you know, it's it's nice how the nasty noisy negativists leave out pertinent information mm-hmm. and uh, Jesse, uh, I spoke to him for my movie, UFOs Are Real. Uh, That was in 1978 also. I went around the country uh, talking to important witnesses, including, for example, Travis Walton, uh, who's having a conference next week in, uh, well, Heber Overguard, Arizona. Uh, I'll be the keynote speaker, uh, leave on Wednesday. Come back the following monday uh expecting a lot of people out in the middle of nowhere two and a half hours from phoenix incidentally it's going to be cold there i got cold here what do i need to go there <laughs> yeah right
3: <laughs>
0: <laughs> you know so but uh so roswell has been very important uh i've been at almost all of the annual roswell ufo symposia i missed last year because of my heart attack unfortunately but uh uh, I hope to be there this year, and uh, it is. I also attended a reunion of the 509th and met some of the other officers, uh, oh. and that was over in uh, Utah, I guess it was. Uh, uh, the Roswell is an important case for several different reasons, primarily because of the people who were involved. Uh, you know, this isn't just a bunch of dinks with nothing better to do but make up stories about UFOs, uh, flying saucers, as they were called then, flying discs. And the kicker is not only the people, but the story makes sense. People say, I, I had a Soviet, not a Soviet, an English astronomer, when I was saying what was special about New Mexico, that the first atomic bomb and all the rest of that, <laughs> Oh, they could have gone to the Soviet Union, I had to say. Uh, no, they didn't test their first aid bomb until
3: 1949.
0: Uh, so New Mexico was a special place. If you're looking at it from uh, an above-the-place attitude, I mean, the, the signature of man on this planet is that we're a primitive society whose major activity is tribal warfare. And a lot of people don't realize we have actually exploded two thousand nuclear weapons on oh. this planet. That's... Only two of them on people, thank goodness. Yes.
2: Yes. Thank but
0: but you know what I'm saying? That no. uh you know, in World War Two and I have no idea what they teach in the history books and schools anymore, but in World War Two we nice earthlings killed fifty million people. We destroyed seventeen hundred cities. There were bombing raids with 500 airplanes flying over Europe, dropping bombs. Uh, would any alien think we were nice guys? You know, why don't they land on the White House lawn? It's a no-fly zone, for goodness sake. <laughs> Every country on the planet would love to grab a saucer for its technology. You know, we spent a lot of money on developing advanced flight technology. A stealth aircraft cost $10 billion to develop, and secret, mind you. So you step back a little bit, and Roswell wasn't the first sighting. It it may not have been the first crash. We have Cape Girardeau in Missouri in 1941, I guess. Uh, So it's... It's important because of the quality of the people, because when we started our research, most of those people were alive. Uh, one of the things that you can see on my website, www.stantonfriedman.com, is a DVD called Recollections of Roswell, and it has first-hand testimony from 27 witnesses. I think they're all dead now, not surprisingly, considering 47, but... uh In other words, you can listen to the witnesses yourself. These are not third-hand stories, and they're highly qualified people. Uh, So Roswell is important. It's not the only crash. I'll stand behind the Aztec-New Mexico crash in March of 1948, up at the other corner of the state.
1: They were going to ask you about that, yeah.
0: Yeah, there's there's a book out by uh, Scott and Suzanne Ramsey, The Aztec Incident, Boy, did they do an outstanding job, spent a ton of money finding witnesses. Uh, her family's from that part of the state.
1: So. Yeah, I've read it. It's a great book. Uh,
0: well, okay, then you know what I mean. Yeah. Uh, and they found archival information, all that sort of thing. Uh, there was another one in uh, Brazil, Varginha. Uh, well, there was one in the plains of San Augusta in New Mexico, about 100 miles west of the Roswell one. At the same time, maybe a mid air collision. I don't know. I wasn't there.
1: Yeah, well, we had uh, Bob Campbell on about that a few weeks ago.
0: Bob or Art? Uh, Art, I'm sorry. Okay, I thought, gee, there are two Campbells working on that? <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, so uh, crashes are important because the proof positive, in other words, Roswell is proof positive of two things aliens are visiting and governments are covering up.
3: Mm-hmm. How's that Bert? Yeah
0: double-barreled uh, conclusion. And, mm. you know, for people who, who can't believe governments can cover anything up, uh, I hate to say it, some of the astronomers, uh, Dr. Tyson, uh, has said that the proof that governments can't keep secrets, that the U.S. government can't keep secrets, is how much we know about President Clinton's genitalia. Which mm. is pretty funny, but pretty stupid, too.
1: Yeah, right, mm, yeah.
0: And Dr. Seth Shostak of the SETI Institute, so the effort to investigate SETI, said the proof the governments can't keep secrets is what a lousy job FEMA did for Katrina and how badly the post office is run. Well, wait a minute, guys. How about the NSA, the CIA, and the NRO, National Reconnaissance Office? Washington Post article in uh, a year ago, August a year ago, uh, said that the total military intelligence budget for the year was $52.6 billion. Now, that's a lot of money.
1: Yes, it is. You know,
0: uh, it's not peanuts. It's not four professors and 20 grad students. Uh, It's a massive effort. And a lot of the data... CIA, NSA, and NRO obtain. Almost all of it is born classified. Uh, people want me to prove that there was a Majestic 12. Well, give me the reports. Well, I've got the one that, that's been released, but uh, classified material isn't out there for the picking. Nope. I've been to 20 archives. Uh, uh, you don't just say, hey, give me everything you got on Majestic 12 and uh, so I can look at it. Secrets can be kept, Uh, and it's not that difficult. Well, let me give you a specific example.
1: Well, actually, uh, we're going to take our break right now, and we'll be right back. You're listening to Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno on WON 1240 in New England's beautiful Blackstone River Valley. We'll be right back with Stanton Friedman. Stick with us.
3: ON Radio, ON Worldwide.
0: Hello. This is Manny Brando, reminding you that my show is on Owen every Sunday morning at 8 a.m.
3: You forget about me. What about you? Virginia Brando, your co-host.
1: You and I are going to have a talk. Again? Owen. Oh, Okay, we just wanted to mention several of the charities Ben and I have adopted on the show. Most of them are veterans' charities, or certainly a UFO, a UFO, right, UFO Cares, USA I got UFOs on the brain tonight. Oh, yes. And uh, the one, wonderful things that they do for veterans and their families, uh, financially speaking. Uh, also, uh, for our neighbors to the north, where Stan Friedman lives, uh, certainly uh, Canadian Veterans Advocacy. Dot org as well uh... mike blaze in ontario is doing wonderful things from the advocacy point of view legislatively legally for canada's veterans who as you know have been with us uh, all along in the war on terror and locally here in uh, northern rhode island southeastern massachusetts certainly the rhode island builders associations uh, special effort known as builders helping Heroes, i was heroes i was privileged to be at the opening of a house in the key ceremony presenting uh, a, a wonderful house that had been built for absolutely nothing for the veteran uh, who was a Marine who'd lost both his legs in Afghanistan. This is last year. So uh, wonderful effort there and a great, well worth supporting. Also, uh, on another note, uh, in Los Angeles, the uh, youth mentoring connection. Tony Larray out there has done tremendous things with youth using, uh, I, well, I suppose you might call it indigenous wisdom to help reach at-risk youth with amazing results. Nothing occult or weird about it, but good uh, common-sense stuff from our our remote ancestors. And he's done great things out there and had uh, tremendous success. And he's now expanding into Peru, as I believe. Uh, At least his methods are being used there. So check that out, too, youthmentoring.org. So let's get back to our discussion with Stanton Friedman, certainly the um, uh, grandfather of ufology, and uh, the original investigator of the Roswell case, which we've been talking about tonight. Now, Stan, you're, you're, you're mentioning, uh, and it's certainly a very point very well taken, very common sense idea that uh, anyone from somewhere else would be very wary about people like ourselves because, as you say, our, our constant activity seems to be tribal warfare, and we put a lot of resources into that. It's not a very attractive scenario. One uh, Only
0: a trillion dollars this year on planet Earth for things military.
1: Oh, that's it? Well... People often say, "Well," you know, and I'm thinking of that line. And uh, Ben and I were talking about it from the original version of *The War of the Worlds*, where the minister, oh, yes, or, or attempts yes, to yes. to uh, contact the aliens by saying, "Well, they're advanced; they must be closer to God." Or yeah, so yeah, yeah. I mean, when you look, what was the most advanced nation in the 1930s, technologically speaking? It was Germany. Germany, yeah. Really, you know, and, and considering its lack of resources, perhaps Japan as well. So, I mean, I don't think that sort of advancement indicates anything. I'd rather be at the mercy of someone with a moral and ethical advancement rather than technological, et cetera. So that's a. Certainly. I just
0: wrote, wrote a review of one of my monthly columns in the MUFON Journal on the book Religions and Extraterrestrial Life.
1: Oh, I must How be. Will We
0: Deal with It by hmm. Dr. David A. Weintraub, who's a professor of astronomy at Vanderbilt University in Nashville. And it's not a bad book. He doesn't say much about UFOs, unfortunately. Uh It certainly doesn't talk about interstellar travel or government cover-ups, the Cosmic Watergate. Astronomers are seemingly allergic to do their homework about UFOs or about interstellar travel. And, uh, you know, this is part of the story of uh, tribal warfare, uh, nuclear weapons. Every advanced civilization will recognize, as we first did in 1938, that nuclear fusion is what produces most of the energy that's being generated in the world. That's what goes on in stars.
3: Mm -hmm.
0: Well, that isn't enough. You can use fusion to travel to the stars. I worked on a fusion propulsion system study back in 1962. Uh, Well, to give you some idea of the difference it makes... You can kick particles out the back end of a fusion rocket uh, that have 10 million times as much energy per particle as they can get in the dumb old chemical rocket. (laughs) Not 10. Uh, That's not surprising. Uh, A big bomb in uh, 1942, 1944, was a 10-ton blockbuster. Wow, 10 tons of dynamite. Holy cow. Well, the first fusion device was 10 million tons of dynamite energy release. Uh, That's one heck of a difference. Mm
1: -hmm. You see what I'm
0: saying? Every civilization that's as advanced as we are, which isn't very... (laughs) No. uh, You know, if you look at our history over the last uh, hundred years or so, uh, we'll know about nuclear fusion. I'm not saying there isn't anything better. But it's certainly so much better than chemical rockets uh, that everybody would know about it. And so I wouldn't blame an alien for worrying about these idiots on Earth taking their brand of friendship, hostility out there. Who would want us?
1: Exactly. I can't imagine Mm,
0: anybody wanting us. You know, first duty of a civilization is protect, you know, security. Keep your people safe. Mm -hmm. And when you got wild ones like us around... And, you know, I, it's not that I don't like being alive on planet Earth. I do.
3: <laughs>
0: but, uh, from a pragmatic viewpoint, we're a threat to our own planet, no less to the people on the planet. How many people died yesterday in terror, Oh, yeah, Good for You know, everywhere. So, when people say, why don't they just land on the White House lawn, I, I just laugh.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, you know, it, it, it's ridiculous. And we we forget. Uh, that war is the way we seem to be going, and nuclear is the way to do it bigger and better.
3: Yes.
0: Well, you know, on the propulsion side, I'd I like to remind people, because most people are sh- shocked, that we have nuclear-powered aircraft carriers, fission, not fusion, not as effective per pound, if you will, mm-hmm. that can operate for 18 years without refueling. That's... Uh, skipping a lot of stops at the gas station. Mm
1: hmm. Mm hmm. Almost the life I, of the vessel.
0: Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, and of course, submarines can go around the world underwater. We we all grew up knowing that the Germans said uh, we're knocking off a lot of ships with submarines, but they don't realize that submarines during World War II could stay underwater for uh, a day at most. They need oxygen for the diesels. Uh, the people you can you can get oxygen for but the, the diesel's the oxygen. Well, uh, now we have submarines that can go around the world underwater. They take periscope leave when they go by Hawaii. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> what Navy guy said to me. And so what I'm saying is, there's nothing crazy far out about saying let's go nuclear. I worked on fission rockets, and Los Alamos built one. That was successfully tested out near near Area 51, dare I say it, <laughs> uh, back in the late 60s. It operated at a power level of 4,400 megawatts. That's twice wow. the power of Grand Coulee Dam, which is just a little larger. <laughs> yeah.
1: I remember the photos you showed at the Lemonster Conference. Uh, and I, it was yeah. the first time, I, all the times we've been at conferences together, it's the first time I've actually. Been able to sit through one of yours and listen to it. It was a great pleasure, but I'd never seen those photographs before. It, it's amazing. Of well, rea- there were, small reactors.
0: Book, yeah, they're, they're, my book, uh, "Flying Saucers and Science," has pictures of a couple of nuclear rocket reactor propulsion systems. These things are real. Now they were the programs were a secret. They weren't black programs. You know, uh, they were in the budget, uh, unlike the stealth aircraft, which was a black program. But, uh, oh, I was trying to say before that the proof that governments can keep secrets about UFOs, the NSA, National Security Agency, Mr. Snowden's organization, (laughs) uh, they released uh, back in the 80s, they released 156 top secret Umbra UFO documents. However, there was a little kicker. They Everything was whited out except one sentence per page. Uh, So they released them, but, you know, you don't know what they were talking about. And the CIA had many, many pages of blacked out top secret Umbra documents. And I mention this because I keep running across people who want to insist that secrets can't be kept. I'm sorry, they can be. Sometimes they leak. Okay, that's not very often. The penalties are pretty severe for uh, leaking classified information. I had some people complaining that the uh, Majestic 12 documents must be fraudulent because we don't have a provenance. We don't know who sent them. Here we have a top-secret magic document, and they expect the guy who sent them to stand up in public. Hey, it was me, folks. He's breaking the law. It is against the law to release classified information to somebody who doesn't have an appropriate clearance or need to know. Exactly, it, That's punishable by severe penalties. Mm-hmm. But they expect somebody to stand up. I'm saying if they're hoaxes, why didn't somebody stand up and say, gotcha? Yeah. You know, aside from the question of how did uh, he know all the things that nobody else knew when we got the documents that turned out to be true from information obtained later?
1: Well, you've just led into our next subject, which is is the MJ-12 documents. But before we do that, Stan, why, why don't you, because uh, we, we burn up this hour really quickly, why don't you tell, tell people about your books, your website again, and where they can find out more. Okay.
0: Well, the website is easy, com. Uh, The books are Flying Saucers and Science, which covers the waterfront, all aspects of the problem, captured with Kathleen Marden, Betty Hill's niece, the story of the abduction the UFO experience of Betty and Barney Hill. The book that Kathy and I also did, Science, was wrong. Fourteen chapters. We each did half. Each one stimulated by some smart guy saying something stupid. (laughs)
3: Like, man,
0: (laughs) well... Man will never fly in an airplane. That was two months before the Wright brothers
3: first flight. Mm-hmm. That was
0: the great astronomer. Or space travel is utter bilge, said the British astronomer royal one year before Sputnik went up. <laughs> and, you know, there's a whole bunch of these, medical and others. But it means you got to really be careful about taking the word of somebody who is prominent and educated and smart, but doesn't know what the heck he's talking about. mm the presumption is, if this were true, this crazy thing you're saying, like aliens visiting, uh, I would know about it, because I'm a smart person. I keep track of what's important in the
3: world. And mm-hmm.
0: That's kind of crazy reasoning. Another book is Top Secret Magic, M-A-J-I-C, which is about these MJ-12 documents, Majestic 12 documents. Now, President Truman set up Majestic 12 in November, uh, was it November, September? whatever, at the end of 47, uh, to deal with Roswell and the whole UFO scene. Uh, and Top Secret Magic, I go through the documents. We have three that are genuine and a whole slew that are phony. I don't care about the phonies. You know, that comes from being a nuclear guy. 99.7... Yeah, 99.3% of the uh, atoms of uranium in a normal sample of uranium aren't fissionable. I want that other seven-tenths of a percent on uh, the U-235. The fact that the rest doesn't work doesn't mean that little bit doesn't. It does. You know, like the basketball coach. Give me a seven-footer. Well, but most people aren't seven feet tall, coach. I don't care about the ones who aren't. Give me the one who is. <laughs> you know, so uh, it, it's top secret magic deals with that. Uh And... You know, there are numerous papers that I've written, but they can see all about these books uh, on my website. tells you how to get them with an autograph, incidentally. You can buy them from Amazon, of course, but uh, you don't get autographs that way.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> Personally autographed, and the books by Kathleen Martin and myself, both of them, both of our autographs are in the books. We send book plates. We don't send the books back and forth. That's a little ridiculous.
1: Yes, you know? indeed. Oh, very and
0: good. Uh, I do, my schedule uh, is in there, too, normally, and I'm hoping, now I admit it, last year I was supposed to be at Roswell, and I had a heart attack, and that put me out of commission for it, and the MUFON conference. But I hope I make both of them this coming year.
1: Certainly hope so, yeah. Okay, yeah. very good. All right, uh, well, good. Uh, and. Uh, well, since we're on the MJ-12 documents, uh, w- why don't you tell us what MJ-12 was or is and what the documents were about and how you, how you got involved?
0: Well, I think the, uh, the project name has undoubtedly been changed once it went public. I know when I was working in the industry, every once in a while you'd use a code name for something, but when that is revealed, you've got to change it. Truman set it up, named the 12 people who were on it, two Army, two Navy, two Air Force, Five scientists and the first Secretary of Defense, uh, uh, James Forrestal. And it mentions that Roswell happened, Body re- bodies recovered. And the group was an outstanding group. And one of the real shockers, and one of the reasons I was thought these must be phony documents, it came in the form of a roll of film in the mail, an Eisenhower briefing document uh, November 18th, 1952, I took office in January of 53. So it was being briefed on all kinds of high-security stuff. And uh, it names the, the people, but there was a real shocker there, which made me very dubious. Dr. Donald Howard Menzel was a Harvard University astronomer who had written three anti-UFO books. Everybody else, you could prove easily, had a high-level security clearance. Uh, But you don't need a high security clearance to teach astronomy at Harvard, as far as I know, anyway. Mm -hmm. And he he was a total debunker. Three anti-UFO books uh, gave talks and wrote articles and so forth. But... I followed through. I found one reference to him and Dr. Vannevar Bush, who was head of the Office of Scientific Research and Development during World War II. And uh, followed up on it, and I can long story short, it's in the book. I discovered to my total shock, I had to get permission from three different people to go to the archives at Harvard to see his papers. All these guys were dead. How convenient. <laughs> the last one, well, the last one dying, just uh, a month before we got this roll of film in the mail with this information on it. Uh, And I was totally shocked to find in Menzel's papers three different approvals I needed to look at them. uh, That he told Jack Kennedy that he had a longer continuous association with the NSA, National Security Agency, of anybody in the country. It turns out he was also a world-class cryptographer classified work for dozens of companies. I was—I had one run-in with him while he was alive, and I didn't like the man. But I certainly developed a lot of respect after reading all this stuff. So I can prove, people say, oh, he couldn't have led a double life. I'd written an article about the double life with Don Menzel. Every spy leads a double life. You know, mm-hmm. uh, it does happen. Uh, three British Intelligence agency people were Russian spies. Philby and uh, McLean, and there's another one. Uh, so it does happen anyway. Uh, and there's big argument going on. There are two other documents which uh, I say are genuine. There's a hundred phony ones. But wouldn't you expect disinformation from the government if good stuff gets out? Uh, they can't stand up and say, "Oh, this is a real group." No, like I, I can show a bunch of documents are phony, and I did in top-secret magic. But so what? During the war, disinformation was a way of life. Mm-hmm. We, fooled, we fooled Hitler. It was extremely important. We convinced Hitler with subtle little things showing up hither, thither, and yon that the invasion of Europe was going to come at Calais instead of at Normandy.
3: Mm-hmm. That's right.
0: And the generals said, history, once the invasion took place, bring in the reserve, we need them. And Hitler says, no, 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 that's not the real attack. That's going to come over here. So he held back. And by the time he released the troops, it was too late. Disinformation. Official line, call it what you want. Uh, you know. So there's a bunch of documents that I believe are phony. And I, I show it uh, in a number of cases. I find the documents that were emulated find a book, and I started looking through it, and there are three documents there that somebody had retyped, changed just a few words, Xeroxed the handwritten stuff, exactly the same place on the page, you know, dates and names and stuff. Uh, so somebody was playing games, I'll, I'll bet the intelligence agency classes were given the assignment, make up a phony MJ-12 document, we got to convince the world that these things aren't real. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, which people look at me like, "What are you, Disinformation? What are you talking about?" There's a lot of it. It's gone on all the time.
1: Yeah. So MJ12 was a group set up by is it was it Truman, Truman.
0: first to oh, yeah. uh,
1: to determine what to do about alien life or whether it really was or that sort yeah, of thing.
0: Yeah, and remember, th- there are a couple of different things you'd have to do. You'd have to. Take the reports from the classified channels of information. Uh, Military pilots chasing UFOs with gun cameras, you know, to get information. Mm -hmm. The Air Defense Command stuff, the radar guys, all that. Somebody's got to analyze that stuff. Somebody also has to work on wreckage, which is a wholly different matter. Uh, And people forget, well, I had two guys tell me, if Roswell really happened, They'd have had to pull half the professors of physics out of the university. I laughed. I said, you've got to be kidding. Are you forgetting We're in Los Alamos, Sandia, Livermore, Oak Ridge, mm-hmm. Hanford? Loads of people with great skills and high-level security
3: clearances.
0: You know, you don't go to a university. You're built stealth, not some university. Mm-hmm. Uh, when I was working, and people don't have a good idea of how big these programs can be. When I was working on aircraft nuclear propulsion at General Electric in 1958, Cincinnati, uh, our budget that year for the department was $100 million, and we employed 3,500 people, of whom 1,100 were engineers and scientists. Now, $100 million was a lot of money in 1958. Amen. I mean, it's not that it's small potatoes now for me, but at least but, uh, it was an awful lot of money then. So when Uncle Sam wants to do things, he has money to spend on highly classified activities. And just because some classified activities make it out doesn't mean they all do. Uh, for example, in World War II, a very important part of the victory, was that we had broken the German and Japanese codes. We were listening to their most secret communications. There were 12,000 people at Bletchley Park in England whose job it was to intercept, uh, decode, translate, and carefully distribute these messages. 12,000. There was not a word in public about our having broken the codes until 25 years after the war was over. 12,000 people kept their mouths closed. Uh, and so, you know, we have real-life examples of secrets being kept, of false information being put out, and people say, well, why don't we release... Uh, some people are pushing for disclosure. Yes. We're entitled to know everything in a free society. No, we're not.
1: No, I, I don't agree with that either.
0: Yeah, There are national security considerations. Should we put what we have learned from wreckage... Out on the table, if the Russians and Chinese don't put out what they have learned, it doesn't make any sense to me. And also, you better be prepared. The world is going to change uh, when the truth comes out. I mean, I'm looking for the, you know, the Daniel Ellsberg of the UFO world, <laughs> or the the Woodward and Bernstein of the UFO world, blow the lid off the cosmic Watergate. Yeah. But we need to be prepared for that.
2: Like, what not kind of changes do you it mean?
0: Well, what happens to religion? Uh, some religions are really local in scope. Some Christian religions are, you know, Jesus died to save us, but not anybody out there. Uh, there are other religions. The Mormons think that there are aliens out there. And that new book that I mentioned, Religions in Extraterrestrial Life, he goes through the the Hindus, the Buddhists, uh, the different Christian sects, a whole bunch. And there's some real impact in some places. That's true. Uh, Also, also, who speaks for the planet? I don't think there's any government on this planet, maybe I'm wrong, I hope I am, but I don't think there's any government on this planet that wants its citizens to owe their allegiance to the planet, to think of themselves as earthlings, in other words, Mm. instead of as Americans, Greeks, Chinese, Russian. You know, nationalism seems to be the only game in town, just look around the planet as we speak. look what's happening in in uh, Ukraine, look what's happening in Turkey, uh, Syria. Uh, you know there's a lot of problems going on out there and all related to nationalism.
1: People in power
0: don't want to give up power. I think that's uh, an axiom of politics, isn't it?
1: I think that's right, along with money.
0: Well, yeah, power and money sort of go together. right?
1: Yeah, they do. They Thanks. do. Oh, boy. Well, we're just about out of time, but what's uh, what's going on for you next? Can you tell us about uh, your schedule?
0: Well, the next thing, on Wednesday, I go to Arizona, yeah. and I'll be the keynote speaker at Travis Walton's conference, uh, which will be out near where he was abducted, firing mm-hmm. a sky and all that stuff. I've been there before because he's in my movie, UFOs Are Real. Mm-hmm. List, listed on the website. Uh I'll be giving a talk in California in February, I know, um giving another one. I don't even remember where it is. It'll be on the website, okay. www.stantonfriedman.com. Uh and things come along, you know. I, I don't even anticipate them. Somebody comes along, "Hey, how about speaking at our conference?" "Oh, I'm going to be in England." That's right. Uh, at a conference and uh
1: I'll have fun.
0: I've spoken in 18 countries, all 50 states, 10 provinces. So a lot of frequent flyer miles, man. <laughs> yeah, right.
1: <laughs> Indeed. Well, we saw you in Exeter and Leominster just in a two-month period. It's always a great pleasure to see you. And uh, we. Uh, it's really great to see you back on your feet, Stan. And uh, we look forward to seeing you soon again. And uh, as we mentioned, uh, you were, you've been kind enough to uh, agree to write the preface for our next book. And uh, we're yeah. looking forward to that as well. And, um we wish you the very best, and we'll hopefully see you soon.
0: I'm looking forward to it.
1: All right, Thank you so much. Thanks. Okay. Stan Friedman, everybody. Everybody knows Stan. As I say, I just happened to turn on the TV yesterday and the Science Channel. There he was. There so, he is. Yeah, that's it. So uh, Ben, well, let's uh, do our announcements and uh
2: all that good stuff. So we had a great time on Saturday at the uh, Autumn Paranormal event that was in uh, Hampton, New Hampshire, which we raised five hundred and thirty dollars to benefit the New Hampshire SPCA. And uh, congratulations to uh, Lynn Nickerson and uh, Willie Hassel for a great job organizing that event. And it was it was it was very fun to be there. Uh, that about does it for our twenty fourteen lecture season. Uh, but keep an eye on our events page at BehindTheParanormal.com. dot com and NewEnglandGhosts.com for any further adventures. And also BehindTheParanormal.com is where you can find 600 free podcasts of uh, our past shows and on both uh, ON1240 and our four-and-a-half-year run on CBS Radio, along with uh, special shows and podcasts.
1: Yes, there is a rumor that you don't know this yet, Ben, that we might be back in England next year uh, to speak at one of the conferences there, but we'll see oh, how that wunderbar. goes. Uh, yes. So find my books on Amazon.com, Amazon Kindle, Barnes & Noble Nook, etc., the usual places. Uh, But if you buy, just as as Stan does, if you buy them directly at BehindTheParanormal.com, I will sign them for you. And you'll help us keep all those podcasts on the website free. Also on our sites, you'll find direct links to several charities that Ben and I have, have adopted and that we mentioned earlier, including USA Cares, Canadian Veterans Advocacy, and
2: Youth Mentoring Connection in Los Angeles. Doing great things for youth. Indeed. So uh, next Monday, November 10th, right here on ON1240 and ONworldwide.com, we welcome Canadian researcher and media personality. That's uh, Dr. Peter Sacco. Is that it? I believe it's how he pronounces it. or uh, Sacco. It. Sacco? I'm thinking of the town in Maine, Sacco, yeah. Oh, or, or what people used to call disaster movies when they first came out. Before they had the name disaster movies, they were called Sacco films. Well, I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah, fun fact. I mean, $45,000 a year at Emerson
1: College. You learn yeah, all to learn stuff.
2: really to learn really, really, really uh, useless fun facts. <laughs> and so we're going to be talking to uh, Dr. Sacco uh, for uh, his uh, take on poltergeist and exorcism. That should be a barn burner. Oh, yes. We leave you this evening
1: with a selfless thought from that old sweetheart, Mark Twain. The best way to cheer yourself up is to cheer someone else up. I'm Paul Eno.
2: And I'm Ben Eno. And thanks for joining us on our great cosmic journey, and we shall see you next time.